Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Both on and off the field. Here's Sean Pendergast and Pro Football Hall of Famer, the General Sean McClain. Welcome, welcome to Utopia. All right, John, you ready to do some mailbag questions here? Let's do it. All right, mailbag time, everybody. If you want to email the show, mailbag at gmail.com. We uh, we it's summertime, but we're answering questions, and this is kind of a good time of year too because you can go a little off the page. With some of your questions, although these are some pretty hardcore football questions that people have come up with for this week, and we got a few regulars emailing in, we'll bump them to the front of the line here. Charles Honeycutt, speaking of JJ Watt, I uh, wanted to ask you guys what is your favorite JJ Watt memory? Everyone says the Bengal playoff game, and rightfully so, but me personally, it was the EJ Manuel interception return that was 2014. I was at that, I was at that game, and I had my JJ Watt jersey on. Good job, Charles. Uh, John, do you do you have a non Cincinnati pick six playoff game favorite J.J. Watt memory. I, I've got so many of them since I saw ever play. Um, I, I liked it when he caught, when he went in as a tight end, and everybody in the press box would say, uh, J.J.'s going to get the pass, and yet he'd be wide open. He caught a touchdown pass in Cleveland, and we're up there saying, J.J. Watt's going to get this, this pass. The Browns got to know it. Why are they going to use him? Boom, it's like Mike Vrabel. Mike Vrabel was the best ever as being another position player on defense, going in at tight end and catching passes. And J.J. did it. And then they stopped because everybody was ready for it. And I have some great memories of what off the field, most mm. involving charities. Yeah. But when he caught the ball because he was so good at it and he took so much pride in it. Yeah. Uh, the one you're talking about in Cleveland, John, that was a difficult catch. That was when he, like, tippy-toed the sidelines and, and went to the ground. Like, that was – I mean, he played tight end at one point in his college career, so it's not it wasn't totally foreign to him. But, yeah, he was a remarkable athlete. Mine, mine is probably same season as the E.J. Manuel pick six, but that Colts game. It was a Thursday night game, I think. The Texans lost that game on Thursday night. Fitzpatrick was the quarterback – but they were trailing like by double digits and that they got back in that game when JJ it, it's on the, in the box score, it's just a scoop and score. But if you go back and watch that play, you know, there was a sack might've been JJ who got the sack. I don't even remember, but there was a fumble in the pocket by Andrew Luck. JJ was on the ground and scooped up the fumble and got up and ran it back for a touchdown. I forgot about that one. You're right. That was he, a great one. He, I mean, it's, it, it sounds weird to say, but a guy, his size, literally falling on a fumble, getting up, and then being able to get up to top speed to run it all the way back is a pretty incredible feat. 
So that's mine. That's my non-Cincinnati pick six one. Um, all right, next one, John. Cody Burnett. Tank Dell, are there any pro comps that have been great at his size? Rookie Tank Dell, 5'8", listed at 5'8", John. I, I, went and, I went and found an article about the top receivers under six feet of all time, and I don't think you can take 5'11", guys, and use it as a comp. There, but my, my, before you give specific names, my, the article that I saw had about 20 names there weren't any 5'8", and the only 5'9 guys were Wes Welker, T.Y. Hilton, and Steve Smith. Um, so that's not many guys Tank Dell's size to even compare him to, let alone you know, identify one and say, yep, that's the guy. Uh, it's unusual. The Texans list him at 5'10". He's 5'8". He shrunk two inches from U of H. Amazing <laughs> how that happens to almost every player where the colleges make him bigger. He was 165 at the combine, but he has such incredible quickness, explosiveness, acceleration. He's tough. He's smart on his route running. I think at first he'll be a return guy. Trenton Holiday from LSU. That was his name, right? Yes, Trenton. Yeah. He was Trenton Holiday was, I think, shorter than five eight. He was five five. And he was really good at that. But I think uh, if your difference in five eight and five nine, let's look at those three you just said. Mm-hmm. All of them were really, really good. Yeah. And uh, Wes Welker, especially because he played in the middle, to me he's the best slot receiver ever. And uh, so that's who he would mimic the most. He may have to. He'll get on a weight program, and he might have to get up around one seventy, one seventy five. But he's going to be banged around in the middle. But they got to hit him first. Yeah. And uh, when he and, and John Mechie are healthy, we're going to see both of them inside. Mechie can play outside as well. And I, I'm guessing Tank's going to require a little adjustment because he's going to be getting hitting hit by a lot bigger, faster, and more talented players than he faced at U of H. But there was a reason they drafted him. They love his big play capability. He's the non first round rookie I'm most excited to see in training camp. That's the one right there uh, is Tank Dell from the University of Houston. All right, next one, John, from Joe Q, another frequent emailer, asked this question. um, Is it harder, in your opinion, to find a great coach than finding a great quarterback? It seems clear that it's at least as hard or at worst almost as hard. And if that's the case, why do top QBs make so much more money than the coaches do. John, what's your take on that? Harder to find a great coach or a great quarterback? I think it's harder to find a great coach. And uh, you know, how many do you say are really great? How many are great because they got great quarterbacks? You go look out to history of all the great – would Bill Walsh have been in the Hall of Fame without Joe Montana? And without Joe Montana? No. Would Chuck Noll be in without Terry Bradshaw? Tom Landry had – had Roger Staubach, Jimmy Johnson, had Troy Aikman. You know, the, the it's hard to find a great coach. And the guy that did the greatest job of that is Joe Gibbs. Went to Super Bowls, won them with three different quarterbacks, none in the Hall of Fame, not even mentioned in the Hall of Fame. And he lost one with a different quarterback. So to me, that was people will say I'm crazy. Vince Lombardi had Bart Starr, but he also had a lot of Hall of Famers around him. I don't think Bart Starr being the top 20 greatest quarterbacks in history. But if if I see a coach that's great, is Bill Belichick great without Tom Brady? Uh, no. Yeah. And so, and I'm not saying he's not the best ever, but um, 
uh, there have been so many great quarterbacks and there are not so many great coaches. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one, John, uh, let's go to, cause we're not going to get to all of these. So some of these we're going to just save for, um, for next week. Um, this is from uh, downtown Milton. He calls himself. Uh, you've been out. You John have been out at Texans OTAs and mini camp. Who do you think the captains will be this coming season based on how you've watched them interact with teammates? I like that question. <laughs> Now, that's a great question, and and I'll tell you what it is, but I'll also tell you I have a column on sportsradio610.com that addresses that very question. Okay. And two of them that I that I say don't be surprised if their captains, based on everything I've learned on and off the field, because the captains have to be really important in the meetings, helping players. Shaq Mason, the right guard, who everybody speaks highly of, mm-hmm. and Robert Woods. They're both new players. Those two guys have kind of taken over is when it comes to leadership. And on defense, Jimmy Ward, obviously, he spent the last nine years with the 49ers. He and D'Amico are tight. He gets to play safety, his favorite position. Last year he played in a slot, and he didn't like it, and he said he didn't. But Pro Football Focus had him great as one of the top slot corners in the NFL. Now he's back at safety. So he's a natural. And the other one, when the other one was drafted, I wrote a story about him for the Houston Chronicle. I think it might've been the last thing I wrote for the Chronicle about Jalen Petrie will be a captain in his second season. Now I know the coaches love Petrie. I know how much D'Amico loves Petrie. So I'm going to say Petrie and Ward are locks. And Shaq Mason and Robert Woods are locks, and they may take a couple more. Not sure who it'd be on special teams. It should be John Weeks, yeah, who uh, going into his 14th year, he's been there longer than the Astrodome. And those would make five great captains. Too early for C.J. Stroud, of course, but those are my predictions. Okay, so the, the locks for those four guys. Wow, John, that's a bold prediction. All right, so does this mean that Laramie Tunsil is losing the C on his jersey? Metaphorically, see it. I think probably uh, it's it's not a knock against him, and I think not. I thought last year that when Lovey Smith made him a captain, that was more because of Lovey needing help, mm-hmm. what he did on the field, not off the field. I mean, he doesn't even show up in off in off season, other than the uh, mandatory two day mini camp. So, and they can have more than four. You can have as many as you want. Sure. And may, maybe he still will be, but I don't think there's going to be two offensive line captains. And if they do name Laramie, it'll be just because of his stature as being the best player on the team. Yeah. Well, it says a lot about the culture transplant this team is undergoing, John, that the guys, the first three guys you named are all guys that they signed or traded for in the offseason. You know what I mean? They're not guys who've been in the building or been around the team, which I'm totally fine with. Speaking of which, John, not being at the offseason, two more questions. Tommy and Ido. John, in a previous episode of the Utopia podcast, you were agitated that Sheldon Rankins wasn't at OTAs, and you seem to imply strongly that he could get cut when it comes time to trim the roster to 53. Give me a percentage chance of that happening. It seems like a long shot. Love the pod, guys. It's definitely a long shot. It's only if it's a tie and other people emerge. They got a lot of defensive tackles. And Rankins played well last season. He started 15 games for the Jets. Texans are his third team in four years. To me, it just doesn't make sense. You have a new team, new coaches, and not come except for the minicamp. Coaches cannot, can't admit it, but they're irritated by that. Steven Nelson. Steven Nelson should have been there 
and he wasn't there. You know, he's the last year of his contract. Sheldon Rankin's one-year contract. I would do everything I could. And the only way he would get cut is if other defensive tackles emerged. Yeah. I don't think they paid him one year and 10.5 million dollars. Yeah. But uh he should have been here. And I'll guarantee you they're not happy about it, even though they can't say so. But maybe he'll be like Laramie Tunsil and just step in and play great. I don't think that's going to be the case because he's never been great, mm-hmm. even though he was drafted in the first round. But yeah. uh, it's not anybody else, Roy Lopez, Thomas Booker, Son Ridgeway, none of those guys float your boat for that yeah. position. But if somebody emerged, but no, I don't think he's going to be cut. I think he might. I think he might not start. Yeah. They gave him a seven million dollar signing bonus. I looked it up. So that to me, the tie yeah. probably goes to the dead money. More he's so not than, he's not going anywhere. Yeah, I don't think so either. All right, last one, John. I really like this one. Frank in Jersey Village. John, I heard you talking about the Dat Win documentary coming out soon. Two questions. One, are you in it? Are you in the doc, John? I'm not in the doc. Okay. Uh, I thought maybe you'd be in there like a vignette or something like that. Is maybe I'm I'm assuming that's a Frank thought. Um, I like this question. This is what I like. If you pick, if you could pick one documentary to be made about the Texans, what would the main topic be? The main topic would be if it's about the Texans history, how the franchise came about, stole it from LA, the mm-hmm. NFL wanted to go to Los Angeles. I wrote that bet the house they're going to LA. Bob McNair kept assuring me that they were going to get it because he had spies in L.A. because knew what was going on behind the scenes, and he was right. But the NFL gave L.A. an exclusive period, sent Roger Goodell out there to leave, to live and get it all together, and he's hanging out with Tom Cruise and all these famous people, and I thought we'd never get the NFL. If it's about their greatest players, I think it would be about J.J. Watt and Andre Johnson. One, Johnson, who was great from the get-go, and had Star written all over him, and Watt, who wasn't, who was a pizza delivery guy, uh, <laughs> who had a wreck and ate all the pizzas and got fired, and God told him, you'll never make it in football, and he didn't excel till he transferred to Wisconsin. So it's contrasting stories. Both of them are great, and they're going to be up there together. That wins documentary coming out July 4th on ESPN and uh, it's going to be on the SEC Network, is fascinating about his parents leaving Vietnam when the war was going on and, and getting on a boat and trying to sail out. We were like 14 people and his whole family trying to sail out to meet a boat from America that wasn't there or they never found it. Hmm. Two weeks later, they land on the island and they say, is this America? And they said, no, this is Thailand. So their story about how they went to Thailand, to the West Coast, to Arkansas, to Michigan, and ended up in Rockport, Fulton, because his dad was a fisherman, and how dad uh, played football without his parents knowing it until he broke his arm and had to tell them the truth. Hmm. And, of course, his career has been fantastic. One story told off the air, I'll tell it here. Okay. Because we ran out of time. Jim Myers, longtime assistant coach for the Cowboys, he died, and Dad met his wife. And his wife said, I think Myers had been in the Air Force. And she asked Dad, were you one of the children that my husband flew out of Vietnam in shoeboxes? And he said, no, ma'am, I was out of Vietnam on a boat. And she said that there were 
Americans and parents putting their children in shoeboxes, babies, to get oh them to America. And, and Jim Myers flew planes that had babies in shoeboxes. I just, I'd never heard that. And I grew up during the Vietnam War. Yeah. And I just, I just was blown away. Anyway, that win story is going to be tremendous, produced by the 12th man. And I hope everybody checks it out. That's a great tease, John. That, that went, and that's on July 4th. It's coming out, you said? July 4th. Okay. Um, circling back to the original question. First of all, your, your JJ Watt documentary, the, uh, you know, the whole preface about him eating the pizzas when he got into, you know, his car broke down and he ate the pizzas and got fired. And the manager of the pizza store had the scouting acumen to take a look at JJ Watt and say, you'll never amount to anything. My question was, was Bill O'Brien the one running the pizza <laughs> store? Oh, that's funny. Somebody, when JJ got to be great and was winning his three NFL defensive player of the year awards. I can't remember who it was. Somebody tracked down that pizza guy and said, well, what do you think now? And of course he said all the right stuff. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my, my, um, my two, and they're probably kind of interconnected. Well, I, let me back up. My big one that I, that I would love to see in part because I think I would be in it. And I think you would as well, because we live through it would be one about the Deshaun Watson saga. Would be an incredible thirty for thirty. I think it will be a thirty for thirty someday, especially if, especially if Watson's time in Cleveland ends on one extreme or the other. You know, winning a Super Bowl or as, you know, the version of Deshaun we got last year, and then it's one of the biggest failures of all time. Uh, and, and and I think the Texans are tied into that as well. Like if the Texans wind up winning a Super Bowl someday, the Deshaun story becomes even bigger because of the butterfly effect of all that. But I think you and I would both be in that as people they interview. I know at the very least I would be in there because of the Rusty Harden interview. Because that that would be in the documentary, right? It has to be. Yeah, and what was it that Rusty said that was the best thing? Happy endings are not a crime. It's not a crime. Just because you go somewhere and get a happy ending, that's not a crime. There's a little bit of Lou Holtz in Rusty Harden. That's not a crime. You get the happy ending. It's, we had a very happy ending in 1988, won the national championship. It was unbelievable. It was that's my kind of happy ending. Um, you so do a sh- great job on those. I never get tired of hearing your Rusty and your and your Lou. I may need to just do a podcast where I'm the two of them talking to each other the whole time. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Deshaun Watson, and then I think, like honestly, as depressing it would be for Texan as it would be for Texan fans to watch. But just the whole Jack Easterby thing, like that whole thing from beginning to end. Oh, nobody's going to watch a Jack Easterby documentary. I, I, I think I, uh, well, it's one where he ends up getting fired. So, yeah, like that's like saying no one's going to watch Game of Thrones. Everybody hates Joffrey. Yeah, until he chokes to death. Talk about awesome. a happy ending. <laughs> that's unbelievable. It's Joffrey has a purple face. It's incredible. I you did know, do an interview for a documentary that's being filmed right now Yeah, that Houston fans, well, everybody, it's about Bum Phillips and the Love You Blue era. Okay. And uh, I did my interviews like eight months ago, and they have seen the players. They did Wade Phillips last week on his birthday, and it's going to be – It's it should be great. The oh, best one I've ever been in is, to me, one of the best I've ever seen about facing Nolan. That yeah. one on Nolan Ryan was tremendous. They really did good. they did an incredible job. And I think the guys doing the one on Bomb, they've interviewed so many former Oiler players, mm-hmm. coaches, media, fans. I can't wait when it comes out. That'll be good. 
John, you know I watched the OJ chase with Lou Holtz. I've told you that before. No, too. did you? What? I watched the OJ chase with Lou really? Holtz. Really? Yeah. No, was, you didn't tell me that. I never told you that? Yeah, it was no. uh, It was. Uh, it was a Friday, as you remember, because the Rockets were playing in game five. It was the... Um, it was the uh, Friday before his daughter was getting me. His daughter's one of my very best friends, Liz. We graduated together, and um, from Notre Dame, and uh, and so it was the it was the Friday before. So there were they had the rehearsal dinner, which I was not invited to because I wasn't in the wedding party. But then after that, they had a party for like the next the next wave of friends. You know, I wasn't in the inner inner circle, but I was in the next circle. So they had a party at a bar on campus at Notre Dame called Senior Bar. They rented it out. And so there's probably like a hundred people there that were in town for the wedding. And it was like a, it was a bar, had TVs, had those big screen TVs, John, like back in the nineties that shot like green, blue and red <laughs> tubes at, at a movie screen. And I was watching game five so intently. I hadn't moved to Houston yet. I, I, I wound up moving to Houston four months after this. I was still living in Connecticut and I'm standing there and I'm watching this series because I've got like 500 bucks on the Rockets to win this series against the Knicks. So I'm like the only one that's paying any attention to it. Everybody else is just drinking and partying. And I'm standing there, man, and I'm watching intently, like focused. And the screen splits. And all of a sudden on one side is the Rocket game and on the other side is the OJ chase. We all remember what that looked like on TV. It was crazy. And I'm watching it. And all of a sudden I hear this voice next to me. This is unbelievable. This is the biggest fall from grace I've ever seen. And I look, and Coach Holtz is standing right next to me watching the OJ chase. And you got to remember, John, that OJ was the sideline, one of the sideline reporters for Notre Dame back then, because they, they, you know, they're on NBC. And OJ was, you go back and watch the Florida State Notre Dame game, the game of the century from 1993, and you'll see two things in there: my brother kicking a 47-yard field goal. And O.J. Simpson on the uh, sidelines for the, the two things everybody's talking about from that game. But O.J. was on the sideline. He was a, he, he was in production meetings in our building. Like, you know, so, yeah, I watched the uh, I watched the O.J. chase with, with Lou Holtz. The last game that he wore his Bruno Magley shoes was here against the Oilers. Oh, really? I got a story about Dom Capers. Dom Capers, the head coach in Carolina. Yeah. Vic Fangio told me this. So one day, all the coaches were gathered around TVs in Vic Fangio's office watching the chase. And it was late. Players had gone. Dom sticks his head in there and said, what's everybody watching? They're watching OJ. And OJ's in his Bronco with Al Cowlings and everybody in the country's watching. And he goes, Dom goes, What's going on with OJ? And every coach turned around slow and looked at him. And Dom had this confused look like, what in the world are y'all talking about? Dude. And they didn't say a word. And then he just left and went back down to his office. That's how that, I mean, that's how closed off coaches are, right? Like it's <laughs> biggest story going. Yeah. It was John. It was funny um, on Facebook last, cause the anniversary was, Last week, it was like Saturday, I think, June 17th, I think was Saturday, Saturday or Sunday. Um, and so Liz, Lou's daughter, put up a picture like the wedding party, you know, from that day. Like, hey, who who knew that the day before this? Oh, yeah, because it was it was a, it was her anniversary. So she posted a picture of the wedding party and she said, man, who knew that the day before this OJ would get chased down the freeway? And a friend of hers who lives in Houston commented on it and said, yeah, I listened to. I listen to a sports talk host here in town who tells that story all the time about being at your, you know, your rehearsal dinner or whatever, watching the OJ chase. And she, she actually replied to it 
She said, David, such a small world. Sean Pendergast is my friend. He's such a great guy. I made a movie of him and some friends and my parents in a college project, a class project in college. He's dying for me to release it. LOL. That's true. We did a, she was a film. Great. She was a film major and she had to do a silent movie as part of a project. And this is like our junior year. And so she, she recruited me and two of my buddies to be in the silent movie, which was filmed at her parents' house. And Lou Holtz was my dad in the silent movie. <laughs> oh, that's great. Stuff. It was, it was great. Yeah. Lou, yeah. When we got, we started, we were getting ready to start filming and it was like a Tuesday in the middle of the football season. And so Lou just got home from practice or whatever, and we're getting ready to start filming. And, um, Lou's like, so, so what are we doing here? I'm Sean's dad. Or she's like, she's like, dad, it's a silent movie. Oh, you're regular. You're regular. Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> so I'll tell one more quick, funny anecdote about this, John. He's my dad in the movie and the movie. It's a short, like silent film. It's like five minutes long. Right. And the whole plot line is my parents are leaving to go out for the night and I invite my idiot friends over to have a party and we all get caught the end. Right. It's like a stupid little silent movie. So the, the very first scene of the movie is Lou and, and his, his wife, St. Beth, he would call her. She was, her name was Beth. He called her St. Beth. They were leaving and saying goodbye to me at the front door. And so Liz is like coaching her dad up. Okay. Like, okay, dad, it's a silent movie. So you're not, nobody's going to hear you. So you have to kind of talk with your body motions. You got to be exaggerated with your body motions. Okay. Got it. So you know, ready, action. I hug Mrs. Holtz and Lou comes up to me. They're leaving for the night. He puts his hand out to shake my hand because every dad shakes their son's hand before they go out. He grabs my hand and starts pumping it like a pump handle and he screams, shake your son, shake your son. And, and Liz is like, cut, cut, like, Dad, you can shout as loud as you want. Nobody's going to hear you. It's a silent movie. <laughs>